Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, hey, how's it going? Hope you're having a good day. This is Ian Foster. It's my podcast, If and When. Thank you for tuning in again for the first time, whatever. Welcome. The summer tour is now behind us. We had a great time over a couple of weeks touring around beautiful, beautiful Newfoundland in some really, really special venues and got to see some good friends again, make some new ones, all that good stuff. And here we are. It's September. Somehow, September. What's going on in my world? Well, at the moment, I'm currently working on three albums somehow. If you're wondering how one works on three albums at the same time, uh, I don't have an answer for you, really. It's it's weird and very cool and very fun. It's very tiring too, but I'm really excited about all three. They're all very, very different projects, which is what I enjoy the most about them. And they're with all wonderful people too, which is an undervalued thing. Maybe you think that's not undervalued. Of course you want to work with wonderful people, Mostly, I've been very lucky that I have in my in my career so far. But I I think about it regularly whenever whenever I know I'm I'm just in the presence of people who are just through and through awesome people. I try to take a moment of extra gratitude for that because they're they're understanding and they're excited and they're compassionate and gracious and all that stuff. So um, outside of the art, you know, that's a really important thing that I think we take for granted sometimes. Anyway, more about all those as they come to fruition. Obviously, don't want to talk about them before the artist is talking about them, but I am excited. I can mention two of them um, because they have funding campaigns happening. So one of them is a new artist named Kirk Wells. It's his debut record. He's doing a uh, pre-order for his record right now. You can go check that out if you're interested. And also The Duds, which is Melanie O'Brien, who I've worked with before, and her musical partner, Phil Goodridge, are doing a record with me, a debut EP, also available for pre-order. You can look those up just by Googling or Facebooking those band names, Kirk Wells and the Duds, and you will find that information. And if their music, if you've seen them before or are just interested and intrigued by them, you can order their music now and be happy when it shows up in the mail. What else is going on? Well, on October 20th, at the rooms in St. John's, I'm going to be sitting in a lecture theater with a microphone and the other microphone is going to belong to Mary Walsh for about an hour to two hours. And we're going to talk about her life, why she creates, why she has created for all these years of an amazing career. And I'm super excited, a little daunted, but very excited to get to chat with her on the very first live episode of If and When. So please Buy tickets to that. Come to the event on the day, October 20th. It's an afternoon event, which we're excited about, uh, two to four. And it's going to be up here at some point on the podcast, but not before. It's before your very eyes in the flesh. If and when 2.0, here we go. Some live episodes. Cool. 
after that, nothing for about a month. And then we start what's shaping up to be an amazing Christmas tour for about three to four weeks, leading us right up to that magical date that I'm sure we don't want to think about right now because it's technically still summer for a few more days. It's going to be fun. It's going to be cool. So my guest today on the podcast, Shirley Montagu, native of Labrador and a woman that I've had mad respect for for a very long time. I once sat on the board of Music Newfoundland and Labrador with Shirley uh, a lifetime ago, probably at least six, seven years ago. Got to know her that way. Got to know her through performing now twice at the Trails, Tales, and Tunes Festival out in beautiful Grossmourne, Newfoundland, and sharing a songwriter circle with her, getting to hear her music, and then hearing it more and more over the years. She's a, a powerful artist and a really special person, and she says a lot of really cool things in this two-part conversation. Worth noting from the title, as you might have noticed, it's called Feel Recording. It's because when we were on tour this summer, we recorded these podcast episodes with a mobile recording rig in different places. So I sat down in Woody Point, Newfoundland with Shirley to chat with her outdoors on a beautiful sunny day. You can hear a guy going up the road on a dirt bike. Classic. You can hear the table getting banged every now and then, maybe some wind, maybe, uh, I think somewhere in this two-parter, there is a classic Newfoundland cackle, like several houses over. Um, I'm sure someone is going to hear that, know that person that I said that with because of where I just said I was, and then write me that that cackle belongs to their great Aunt Edna, and they're mad that I called it a cackle. Anyway, check it out. It's, it's fun. It's raw. There's all that stuff in there because it's outdoors. You can hear, you know, it's a different quality of podcast audio, but I feel it still sounds good. You know, don't get mad. Um, and, and that's, what's up. It's, it's kind of special. It's, it's just two people sitting around a table outdoors in the summer sunshine, having a chat about Shirley Montague's career. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, here's part one. It breaks, as you'll hear, when Shirley needs to run down to the water taxi that comes from Bombay to pick up something. So it seemed like a good time to break in the podcast as well. So we're going to take you up to when Shirley had to run a brief errand, and then we'll pick up next week with the other half. Here we go. Shirley Montague. Hey, Shirley. Hey, Ian. It's nice to see you out here on the West Coast. It's great to see you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Always eager to contribute where and when I can. Yeah, so we're here in uh, Woody Point right now, sitting outside a rare Newfoundland summer treat. <laughs> mm, yes. We have not had the greatest summer, but these nice days are welcome for sure. Totally, mm. totally. So let's start right from, um, right, right from the top. Where are you born? I was born and raised in the little town of Northwest River, Labrador, right in the center of Labrador, about an hour uh, outside of Goose, uh, half hour outside of Goose Bay, maybe right. a little more. Right. And uh, yeah, so that's where I did my schooling, where my um, my heritage is, and uh, I'm I think I'm sixth generation Montague uh, from the original person who came from Orkney. And married into the Innu population. Wow. Okay. That's me. Cool. In a nutshell. Cool. <laughs> I've been in Northwest River. Have you? Yeah. Well, I was up there for the Creative Arts Festival. Oh, great. Yeah. And they brought me into some schools, Sheshashi, Northwest yeah. River, Black yeah. Tickle. When I was a child, uh, 
the Innu lived mostly in tents because they were still nomadic and they would go into the interior of Labrador for the winter months and then they would come out in the spring, early spring, and set up their tents on that very site where Shehiji is and it was much smaller, of course, right. the tent community, but it was uh, it's a very vivid uh, memory for me, you know, and it was always exciting to see the Innu coming out in their canoes laden with their winter's catch and perhaps even new babies and so on and so on. So that's my hometown and I keep a little property up there still. Um, it's not in Northwest River, it's out on an island 23 kilometers east of Northwest River. And uh, I have a little shack, no electricity, no running water, an outhouse, uh, one main room, two rooms with a bunk in each, and a, another little wee room for a hand basin and a bucket. Wow, cool. So I just came back from there actually. I was up for 10 days or so in July and up when the salmon were running. So we ate some fresh fish and um, just hung out and watched the skies. And unfortunately though, had cooler temperatures than normal. We um, had to keep the wood stove going on low almost all day. So that was very unusual for Labrador. Central mm. Labrador is known for its heat. Mm. Didn't happen this year. Right, right, right. And do you get back very often? I make a point of going twice a year, and sometimes occasions bring me back more frequently. But I always go in March uh, when the winter days are long and the sun is is uh, <clears throat> always uh, uh, bright and cheerful. Um, and... Uh, so it's a, a snowmobile trip in March, of course, over four feet of ice or more. And uh, do some ice fishing and watch the northern lights when they appear. And uh, and then I go again in July. Those are my two kind of regulated times, but I will go at other times if there's cause for me to go. I still have a lot of family there, so occasions will sometimes bring me there, you know, kind of a spur of the moment thing. Right, right. I was so struck when I was there by um, how much it's like home, and it is home, but it's also different, you know? There's a, the Newfoundland and Labrador seems completely apt to me, that it is one province, but that it's also two names. I'm so glad that you picked up on that because it's really important to me to convey that message to people. And everyone I've brought, I brought a lot of people there, uh, myself, and everyone I've brought sees the difference, mm -hmm. acknowledges the difference. And to hear you say that, like unprompted by me, is really special because it is. It is a completely different part of the province. And uh, it's historically different. It's... Um, different in so many ways, like the people there are, are different. And prior to the base in the 40s and the um, uh, IOCC in, in Western Labrador, like there were so few people in Labrador, mm -hmm. so few. The population, I don't have the stats, but I'm going to guess, would be like no more than 10,000 people. Right. And they lived in small, very small communities and small pockets. And when the base arrived in Goose Bay, of course, it lured people from outlying communities for steady work. And uh, then Labrador City was established, um, I'm not going to say the year, but um, uh, 
mid uh, 20th century. And I'm not saying the year because I don't know the year. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that was a whole other component to Labrador. And Churchill Falls development was in the 70s. But prior to that, if you can just imagine that vast land, which many don't know, is close to three times the size of the island of Newfoundland and currently only has around 30,000 people. I regularly make the joke when I'm on the road, when someone's like, tell me about Newfoundland. I'm like, well, this is how long it takes to drive across. This is where the ferry is and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they go, wow, that's crazy. And I go, and then there's Labrador. And just so you know, that place is called the Big Land, Mm, right? As a a matter of scale. Yeah, exactly. It's the Big Land, you know, because it is a big land and it has vast expanses of sky from wherever you are you can almost like see weather patterns far off and my my elder family are really good at like forecasting the weather what's going to happen in like six hours for me you know and living outside of labrador and i would so it's a very preserved it's a very different place it is big and minerals unpopulated you know potential hydro all the same which we're seeing you know breath so i think labrador is adjectives and it's going through a very new chapter because when my family were you know, in the early days of the Montagues uh, in Labrador, it was just travel by dog team and uh, foot and very, very slow life. And uh, now, I mean, if my grandfather could be alive today to even know that he could travel in a car from Northwest River to the island of Newfoundland, you know, and take a ferry across the course, he would be like in, in awe of that, the mm. fact that it's doable now. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of changes. Um, some of the smaller communities, I think about them a lot because many of them were centered around traditional industries and what what their future is, I guess, remains to be seen. And uh, the new generation will be seeking new and different opportunities and, you know, sometimes related to their further education and that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see. I probably won't be around to see it, but what those small communities are going to look like in 50 years. Totally. Yeah. I mean, my experiences up there, probably why I said that comment earlier um, that, that you related to was because I had the very specific experiences that the festival provided me to, first of all, fly on a twin otter to mm. Black Tickle. Mm-hmm. So I got that aerial view of yeah. seeing wildlife run in herds and yeah. like got that, you know, looked yeah. out and thought, no person has ever walked in some of these places, which yeah. is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to go to places like Black Tickle, which are That's where they sent me. <laughs> oh, really? When I was doing my um, uh, a little thing with the Creative Arts Festival. That was my outposting. I was supposed to go to Rigolette, which I would have been really happy with also. But I loved Black Tickle. Yeah. I absolutely loved Black Tickle. Me too. I loved the school. I loved the kids. The kids were brilliant. Mm-hmm. They clearly were getting a broad education. Mm-hmm. And I just was totally charmed with Black Tickle. And, but Rigolette, I have some family history there, so I would have loved to have gone there right. also. But I, right. was, I was happy with my posting. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, it was just incredible, you know. And again, an experience that so few people at all get, let mm-hmm. alone, say, Newfoundlanders. Mm-hmm. But it highlighted something to me about 
just the cost of travel, you know. Yeah. I, I remember asking that day, you know, how much would it cost to get from Black Tickle to Goose Bay? And the mm -hmm. guy was like, probably $500 mm -hmm. to get just within Labrador. Yeah. And as you know, to fly St. John's to Goose Bay is probably $1,000. Oh, it's very costly. Yeah. So I feel like that financial problem means that there's a lot of Newfoundlanders who don't know the other half of their province. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I recall, I love to tell people this, um, I, I, one of my trips to my shack in Labrador one year cost me like $880 and that was a seat sale. And it's a one hour flight into Goose Bay. Um, so I then came back from uh, that trip to Labrador and a couple of weeks later, I went to um, Folk Alliance in Memphis. It cost me $600. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's the contrast, a one hour flight to Labrador and a however many flight and chain flight changes and all that to, to get to Memphis. I know. And it was less than going to Labrador. So I that's know. that's perspective there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about music a little bit. So you were born in Northwest River. What's what's what was the beginning of music for you? Well, uh, I come from a family of musicians. Um, everybody played something. Our house was often the gathering place for music. And um, I was just sharing some memories with Vinland Music Camp, which I just came from. And, and. Field recording, as we said. <laughs> and um, the music goes back to the first, to the one immigrant, John Montague, who came from the Orkney Islands to work with the Hudson's Bay Company. And apparently he carried with him, uh, he wouldn't have had a lot of room to take much, but he took bagpipes with him, took his bagpipes. So that spoke to me of the importance of music in his life. So from then on, music continued throughout the family in many ways. Um, my grandfather was a really good harmonica player, although he wasn't much of a stage person, or he wasn't a stage person, I should say. And most of his playing, he'd, he'd play in the bedroom with the door closed. So um, I keep referencing my grandparents because I was raised by my grandparents, so they were like my parents. <clears throat> and um, anyway, I remember when he was going off to the trap line, he'd be gone for months at a time. And a lot of the trappers carried a Bible. And there was that, still that tie to, you know, religion and the Bible. And I did have a great uncle who would say, I, I read I reads the Bible every night before I goes to bed. You know, well, my grandfather did not read the Bible, but as he was packing for the trap line, he would put the Bible aside that my grandmother would suggest, and he would pack his harmonica, probably about the same weight, <laughs> small Bible, pocket Bible. And right. so the harmonica was kind of like his Bible. And I come, um, from an ex, you know that extended family who just always worshipped music and included music in their day so lessons in my family didn't exist it was someone put a guitar in your lap and said put your fingers here and that's how i started playing when i was about 11 years old it was the new religion so. it was a new religion yeah and i started playing accompaniment to jigs and reels because i had uncles who played fiddle and that's mostly what they played so they would teach me to, to play the chords and the, get the rhythm going for accompaniment for for fiddle so that's where I began and then in high school I um, 
I got wind of a, a bunch of guys starting up a band, so I went to their band rehearsal. <clears throat> and they were struggling with uh, a Credence Clearwater number. I can't remember what it was now, but... And I said, give me the guitar, I'll show you how to play it. Now, that's a 15-year-old. I would never do that today. 15-year-olds are full of confidence. And so I showed them how to play the riff, and then right away, I was in the band. So incidentally, coincidentally, this year marks 50 years uh, since I first gave my first pre uh, professional performance. Congratulations. <laughs> well, still, it's nice to be afloat and... Uh, you know, still involved and engaged. So, you know, I, every year or every, not every year, every day, you think, you know, oh, do I want to? Or, oh, you know, you kind of feel inspired and you don't feel inspired and that's the way it goes, or that's the way I am. Mm -hmm. So it is nice to still be involved in some capacity or other. Totally. I'd like to talk about that part a little bit because, I mean, the tag of this podcast has been uh, creators about how and why they do what they do. And I certainly uh, struggle with that as a creator myself. And I'm at year, oh, I don't know, uh, like somewhere between 15 and 20, probably professionally doing it right now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and I've had all those moments already, yeah. you know, so speak to that a little bit how is it for you yeah. how are my next 30 years going to be <laughs> well i think you'll probably carry on in you're you know you, you have a lot of inner inner strength and you have a lot of talent and you will go through um phases and stages of you know the extent of your involvement and clearly what you're doing with this podcast is a little bit of a departure but yet tied to your creative instincts or whatever and um, there, are, there were times when I, you know, just really would not, um, I wouldn't see that I, I, I wanted to continue, you know, I, or, or would I continue, just full of questions and uncertainty and all that. And then something would come up that would interest me. And I'd say, yeah, I, I could do that, I guess. And then I would do it, and then that would inspire you to do something else. And but I'm, I'm just as happy making. I'm just. We're watching a young guy on uh, a little moped or motorcycle, whatever it's called, doing riding on his back wheel with the front wheel up in the air so. yes and i mean doesn't he know this is like radio we can't they can't we can't see him we can only hear him on the, anyway that's sorry a, that's the great thing about radio you don't have to comb your hair <laughs> um yeah so um you know one of the things that i felt um most rewarded by was the establishing the trails tales and tunes festival which you've been at mm-hmm a couple of times. We loved it every time. It's one of our favorites. Well, we are so happy, you know, that we um, have such a good reaction to, I would say, all the performers. We don't know what they say when they leave, but I think we started on the right foot, and it was about taking a professional attitude and uh, treating people, re you know, respectfully and fairly and offering, I won't say a great wage, but as we know, you know, what the music industry can do, I would call what we offer a decent wage. Mm -hmm. And um, so we started on that foot, even though the first year we had absolutely zero 
dollars and mm -hmm. I relied a lot on local musicians because we just didn't have any money and there's nowhere to go in your first year mm -hmm. um, but I did say you will be paid we don't know what it'll be mm -hmm. and you will be paid so we we started off on a really good foot with our local performers who have you know been there from day one and and it's a good security blanket because if we have Ian Foster hired to come and you can't for whatever reason and I can knock on one of the local guys and just, we just had a cancellation. Can right. you fill in these couple spots and you know if you treat people with respect you'll get respect in return. Absolutely I think one of the things that festival does really well um, is it balances the the casual element of kind of small town Newfoundland living with being extremely professional as a festival in terms of how it's scheduled, you know? So as an artist coming into town, I felt like we weren't being like nannied around to do, you know, we weren't like detailed to death about everything, but every I, there was never a doubt that, that things were organized and that we knew what we had to do. And that's actually an extremely difficult balance to strike, I think. Well, it's all about communication. Mm-hmm. And I presented on like <clears throat> the concept of the festival and running events in different situations. And I'd say, what are the 10 most important things in running any event or festival or whatever? And I get the crowd to start, you know, and <clears throat> um, they kind of look bewildered. And I say, well, let's start with communication. Mm -hmm. like, that's the most important thing. And then I go, what's next? Communication. And I do it 10 times. That's the 10 most important things I lay out. Right. I say communication 10 times. And <clears throat> it really strikes a chord with people. Right. Because if you have no communication, it's dead. Mm -hmm. And that, and I mean communicating with like your funders, your venues, your performers, your sound team, everything is about communication. And once there's a break in communication, that's when the chaos takes control. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, something I learned years ago from my school days because I would be the one like organizing the social events in school. And, uh, and uh, it's something that uh, was kind of uh, entrenched in me. So when I started Trails, Tales and Tunes Festival and I just knew from past experience like that is of key importance. Mm -hmm. Just keep the communication straightforward. Um, and accurate and current. Right. Well, I mean, as a performer, I mean, what are you doing more than communicating? Like when yeah. people have asked me, like, why do you, why do you do what you do? I always come back to that thrill, right? That thrill when you feel like you've said something and somebody understands it. In yeah. Some so way. you reach someone, or you touch a chord, or whatever. Yeah. 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 I always love it when I make people cry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, people are like embarrassed and, and I'm like, no, don't be embarrassed. It just means that, you know, some, I, I touch something in you. And Anita Best said to me one time, sad songs don't make you sad. They bring the sadness out of you. Mm. And I thought that was profound, but probably very true. Absolutely. I, it seems like the sister comment to, I don't know who, who said this quote, but that by writing something, you make it clean. Mm. And I've always loved that, you know, that you're digging into the shadows yes. and you're bringing them out into the light that way. Exactly. And there's a therapy there. And I feel like I've, I mean, again, it's, it's, I know we're mixing all kinds of sayings and metaphors and whatever they are here, but it's, it's, it's golden rule as well to me. Like I've felt that as a listener mm -hmm. in so much music that I've loved. Mm -hmm. So really... I mean, yeah. that's what we're trying to do as performers is just do Absolutely. a similar thing. It's storytelling. It's, you know, 
um, a whole host of different things in when you do communicate through music, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a special, very special medium. And for you, it's it seems like um, I mean I I it's interesting. I've known you for years. We we sat on the Music and L board many mm-hmm. years ago together, and uh, obviously through the festival and things. So I've known you, but I found myself last night kind of uh, uh, googling you. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably not a whole lot. There's some stuff. There's oh, some stuff. I, I mean, I, I found you know some recent articles about you. You've received an honorary doctorate. That was yes, very recently, big, right? Uh, in May of this year, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Tell me about that. Should I be calling you doctor now? Uh, <laughs> I myself didn't quite know what the expectations would be, so I'm I'm playing it low key. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a huge honor, and I don't mean to shun it or anything. But uh, I'm a very simple person, and. Um, when I got the email, it was first an email letter, and um, I nearly deleted it because it. I just going through a whole bunch. You know what your day is like mm-hmm. if you're having a particularly busy chapter and you're wa- weeding through emails, and it was like from the president. And I almost went delete. I'm like, okay, this is another president from <laughs> Namibia telling me I won two million dollars again. Uh, My favorite thing of the day is the idea that you almost deleted your honorary doctorate <laughs> because you thought it was spam. I thought, oh, president. Mm. Yeah. So I said, no, that looks like that's Mun, and so and I do interact with Mun in in different ways that I won't go into. But you know, the, well, one thing, the fact that we use the Bombay Marine Station, which is, you know, for Trails Tales Tunes, which is yes. under Mun. Yeah. So I opened it, and then it was, you know, would you accept? Right. An honorary doctorate from Memorial University. And I just like shook my head. I'm like, what? And um, I couldn't <laughs> respond. I, I just couldn't respond. I had to let it be for at least the rest of the day. Wow. And I was What just, was going through your head? I was like, do I deserve an honorary doctorate? Like, what do you have to do to get an honorary doctorate? I thought it had to be bigger than me. And, you know, that's kind of where I was, my head was going. And I read this quote, actually, in this article that I was going to ask you about, that you were like, it, it felt like imposter syndrome or something. Yeah. Or something along those and lines. I only heard that term, imposter syndrome, from a friend of mine. And I had to ask him, like, what does that mean? And he said, well, kind of when you end up somewhere and you're a bit bewildered as to how you end up there or whatever. And, you know, it seems surreal or whatever. Right. So that's kind of how I felt. And... Um, Anyway, so my husband, who's my greatest supporter always, you know, just said, well, you got to respond to that letter. And you know, you know, you know, you, you know, you're going to say yes, you can't refuse. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to refuse, but I just don't know what to say. And <laughs> so I responded and, and said, I'm very honored to receive this gesture. And yes, because the question was, would I be available for convocation? Right. And that kind of thing. And uh so then the hard copy came in the mail, and then I thought, who did, who put my name forward? Like, if it's one of my friends, I'm going to be mad. And uh, so I said, I'm going to call a convocation office and ask, and maybe they don't give that information. Mm. So when I called, I said, can you share with me who put my name forward for this incredible honor? And she said, I'll check uh, with my superiors and see what protocol is on that and she got back to me and she gave me the person and I was like wow I'm so glad it's not 
one of my friends because I probably would have thrown them over the war. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to share that because I don't think she really wanted it to be public. But um, anyway, it was uh, it was a huge honor, and um, the stressful part was having. <laughs> Life is exciting in the field. I know. Um, the stressful part was having to write a 10-minute speech that, you know, would be published. Mm. And uh, like three minutes would be easy, 10 minutes is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just wanted a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you've done, although they seem to have dug up most of that info. Anyway, and, you know, you want to be a bit entertaining because 10 minutes is a long time. Um so I, I did it and um, delivered it, and uh, receiving the degree was uh, a very big day, a uh, very special honor. And I got to wear, this is uh, quite uh, intriguing for you, I got to wear Joey Smallwood's gown. Whoa! <laughs> it was the shortest one they had in, in their uh, wardrobe closet. And uh, so I wore, and uh, and the question was, do you mind wearing Joey Smallwood's <laughs> gown? <laughs> I said, no, I'd be honored. So I, I wore Joey Smallwood's gown and a funny hat, and hats never look good on me, but that's... I've, I've, I found myself at various times standing somewhere exotic or in some truly bizarre situation being like, music brought me here, eh? I have to imagine that there was like times a million for you being like, Backstage wearing Joey Smallwood's gown, about to get an honorary doctorate. You must have been like, hey, well, "How? How am I here? <laughs> how am I here?" Yeah, that's true. That's with you, like through the whole, well, months leading up to, and uh, it's like you know, and do I, do I deserve to be here? And what are people going to think? And you know, what kind of questions am I going to be asked? And what kind of questions were you asked? Um, well, there's always the question, and why do you think, you know? And I, my response was often, well, I didn't make the decision. Mm. So maybe you need to call convocation office. Um, <laughs> File your complaint. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Board of Regents, you know, they received sub- uh, submissions from general public and the Board of Regents gets together and uh, decides yay, nay, or maybe. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, you know, uh, and, and there's always like, you know, like you just had to feel and, you know, all this stuff. And you, you really don't even know what to say because there's no words. Right. There's no words to describe such a moment in, in one's life. And, uh, you know, people will often assume that, you know, it's for my, my music, but it's all related to music, but it's not, it wasn't for, you know, my strictly my performance side of music right for different things that i've done over the years and it really is like a lifetime of cultural uh achievement i guess which i guess is why it must be extra difficult to speak to because you know it's not a it's not a music award that you receive for an album those things you can put in the box of going i guess i had a good year i guess i hit that one out of the park you know Uh, this is clearly like a cumulative, as you say. It's yeah. it's all the things you've ever done to a point, I guess. Yeah. So then how do you even really assess whatever that is? I yeah, mean, and I did have one person say to me, I guess that's for Trails, Tales, and Tunes Festival, is it? And I said, well, you know, I guess that's part of it, but I think it's more about your broad involvement and, and or contribution to mm-hmm. the <clears throat> arts and culture in the province. So, What was your speech about? 
It was a bit about me. It was a bit, you know, how I was raised and my influences and schooling under the International Grandful Association and different um, components of arts, culture, heritage that I've been involved in. And um, I told a few funny stories. I told a story about um, <clears throat> my second band. Uh, I was going to um, um, uh, Trades College doing office administration and my uh, living with my uncle. And he decided that he was going to start a band. Well, he made the decision after spending a little too much time at happy hour, becoming a little too happy. And he made a commitment for a band that didn't exist, which included me. And so he came home, he took to the couch, called for a bucket, and in between his visits to the bucket, he was <laughs> he was telling the story about how we're playing next weekend and, you know, they're paying this much money and, you know, of course you're going to seduce a starving student, you know, with a few extra dollars. <laughs> so I we did the gig and we kept the band going for a year, but his whole reason, in between his... Um, his, uh, what should I say, encounters with the bucket, he'd be looking up and saying something and then something else. And then he said at one point, I don't give a damn, I'm getting a colored TV. <laughs> <laughs> this was 1971 and he was looking for extra income to buy a colored TV. <laughs> so there was a bit of humor in my speech and, um, you know, the, I, I concluded by, you know, just saying, how special it it was to receive uh, the honorary do doctorate at Grantville College because the school that I attended was run by the International Grantville Association. So I reference from one Grantville school to another, and you know what could be more special than that. Mm -hmm. So it uh, it was kind of a broad look at where I came from and the path, and I called it a convoluted path mm -hmm. to today. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, let's talk about your music for a second. I mean, mm -hmm. we've talked sort of around it a bunch. Mm -hmm. uh, how many records? I was uh, counting up uh, for someone uh, the other day, and I, I think it was five solo, and then uh, several compilations that I led and was part of. Mm -hmm. um, one, two, three, four, and four compilations. And then I've contributed to you know, other people's compilations as well. Mm -hmm. But the last Shirley Mondegoose recording I did was uh, in 2000 and I think it was released in 2005. That's the last thing I did um, that was strictly me. And it was like a clearinghouse project. I had a whole bunch of songs written over probably a 25 year period. So you'd hear different phases of Shirley Montague, and uh, you could almost tell, that's Shirley Montague in her 20s, that's Shirley Montague in her 30s, you know, if you listen to it. It's like a mishmash of different styles and influences and things. And, um, yeah, so, and I've written some things recently uh, by request, you know, um, recruited to write for a barbershop choir in St. John's. Which was cool. like, which was really intimidating. And first, I said, I don't think I can do it, you know. But uh, anyway, they said, don't worry about the the choral part of it. Just write the song, and we will work with someone to arrange it for. Right, for the and I, I read that you had the involvement in uh, in the Ode to Labrador. 
Yes, um, the um, Ode to Labrador was written by Dr. Harry Padden, who was a successor of Dr. Grenfell, and he knew nothing about music, but he liked to write a bit of poetry type stuff. And so he wrote the Ode to Labrador to the tune of O Christmas Tree. And that was common back then. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people just wrote to familiar tunes. Totally. There's and multiple Christmas songs that are other Christmas songs or abs- non-Christmas songs. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it always kind of struck me, wouldn't it be nice if there could be an option to have, you know, original music to the Ode to Labrador? I mean, as original as anything can be today. We're all working with the same few notes and we're all bumping into each other. But uh, mm-hmm. so I just wrote a little, you know, kind of soft, folky melody and it was embraced by the Pad and family, which is all I cared about. And um, so that was like probably in the 80s, 1980 something, I did that. Mm-hmm. And people now have a choice. Some people still stick to the old Christmas tree tune, but some people have embraced the melody that I wrote. And um, so, and I didn't want to kind of, you know, force people to make the change. Right. I had no interest in that, but it was like, if anyone's interested, there's, there's an option there. I'm curious about, um, I've done a little tiny bit of commission-based work, and I think it's kind of fascinating because Sometimes I've likened uh, uh, trying to write with purpose to being like some sort of weird, almost meditative element. Like, you mm-hmm. know how if you if you meditate and you're doing a guided meditation, someone's basically asking you to like not think about something and think about it at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, which is like the entire trick mm-hmm. of what it is. And it feels like like I'm really curious how when writing the, you know, the, the words to Ode to Labrador, that you're like, I'm commissioned to do this. It's mm-hmm. a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still have to get it. Like, you can't obviously think about the idea that I'm writing the Ode to Labrador. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be, that would ruin the whole well, in, trick, in, right? Yeah, like, in that case, though, for me, like, I didn't change the words. Oh, right, I okay. just wrote the music. Right. Yeah, so that was a completely different experience. Right. But, um, yeah, uh, on your topic of, you know, commissioning work, there are people who have no idea what you know, the pay scale is for commissioning work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I've come, you know, across that uh, situation a couple of times. And and people who would, you know, like to commission work just don't have the money to to commission. So you strike a relationship or an agreement based on a lot of things, you know, and a a charitable being one. And, um, but it is, if you were to go out and, you know, hire Ian Foster to, to write a song, you, you're looking at, you know, if you're going to follow the scale, some pretty serious money, and mm-hmm. people don't consider that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it does, uh, probably all those things I was just saying have to be taken into account. You're trying to, uh, it's a very different kind of writing, it and is. you're trying to write with a purpose, and there's probably some research involved, and there's probably lots of rewrites involved. A lot uh, of time. Yeah. A lot of time. Yeah. I have to go catch the water taxi, but it's right there. Yep. And I'd be happy to come back for another few minutes. Yeah, okay. Um, but I know it's in now and has a package. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Well, let's so. uh, put, we'll pause for a yeah. moment. Okay, and so Shirley ran off for five minutes, literally five minutes because it's Woody Point, super small spot, and she grabbed a thing and she came back. And when she sits back down, next week you're going to hear part two of my conversation with Shirley Montague. Thanks for listening. Like and subscribe to this podcast. Share it around with those you think would enjoy it. We'll see you next week.